Isaiah chapter 58 is where we're going to be today. The actual lectionary just has a portion of this chapter, but we're going to read the whole thing. So just be prepared, buckle up. This is a lot of reading that we're about to do. Let's dive in. Isaiah chapter 58 says this. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation who does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then... Your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath... And from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, if if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to rise in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you for your word that encourages, challenges, rebukes, convicts, changes us. And we remind ourselves again that we are not here for any name but Jesus. Any of my ideas or thoughts, let them be forgotten. Let only your truth and your word be remembered, and in a little while when we leave, let the name of Jesus be the only name we're concerned with. We love you. Amen. Anyone here like math? Anybody, any mathletes in the room? Okay. Anybody here actually compete in a, what do you call it, a demathlon? Um, you ran a mathathon? 
Uh, I got lots of jokes. Um, <laughs> I'm actually jealous if you did, because I um, was not what you would call a student who was committed to school. Let's say that. Um, I was much more concerned with trying to get my skateboarding career slash metal band off the ground. Turns out it was just a phase, Mom. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, my wife graduated summa cum laude from college. I graduated thank you laude. I'm a dad. I can make dad jokes. All right, you, got, you just got to roll with me. Um, but I had, I had a problem when I was younger. I was actually pretty good at math. Um, but I, I was good at math because I like to solve problems. And I don't like rules. Math has a lot of rules, if you're familiar with math. So here was my problem. I would look at this. This is kind of a basic algebra equation. For the record, I haven't done math in a long time. So please don't judge my math skills right now. This is just an analogy. Um, So I put the easiest algebra equation I could think of up here. When I was younger, I would look at this and I would say, okay, solve for x. 4 plus x is 7, so x is 3. Duh, obviously. I know what that is. And then at the end of the year testing, we would, we would do all of these equations and do all of this work, and the teacher would come along behind me and say, well, CJ, you got the right answer, and that's good, but I can't give you full credit because you didn't show your work. And I would say, but I got the right answer. And they would say, but you didn't show your work. And I was like, that sounds like a you problem. <laughs> it was a me problem. Um, Because in math, it's really important that you know how. Like, there's work. You don't just solve a problem in math. You follow the process. So if I can remember how to do this right, you balance the equation, right? So you do to the opposite side the the inverse of x. So x, if 4 plus x equals 7, then x equals 7 minus 4. So now x is an equation of its own, and x equals 3. So now, theoretically, once again, don't judge my math skills too hard. I know there are more steps I'm missing. The math class I took in college was taught by a professor who did not care and was about to retire, and if my college knew the laxity of that class, they would revoke my degree, I'm sure. Um, My other classes weren't that lax, just for the record. Um, Math class was. This shows you that given different circumstances, I don't just know that x is 7, but I know why x is 7. And I know, or sorry, x is 3. Thank you. I heard that. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. I was saying it wrong. I don't just know that x is 3. I know why x is 3. And I know how to figure out what x is. So if the circumstances are different, then I can still get the right answer. Because in math, right, the right answer is not necessarily more important than knowing why that answer is right. And it's certainly not more important than knowing how you get that answer. The work matters as much as the answer. Now, in life, we don't... Some of us might use phrases like, I'm trying to get the right answer. But more often, we'll use phrases like, where are you going in life? What's your destination? What are your goals? Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in ten years? What's the destination? Where are you heading? And those can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. We all have different goals in life. Generally, as followers of Jesus, we might say that our goal, our destination, we might summarize it as purpose. If we believe in Jesus, we've trusted his death and resurrection on the cross, then we are saved, our sins are forgiven, so we are pursuing the goal of living the life God has called us to, living the life he's created us for. And we might evaluate that differently. It might mean peace. It could mean blessing. Just for the record, biblically, blessing does not mean getting something from God. It means being used by God for something. 
As the theologian N.T. Wright explains, blessing is not God give me something. Blessing is God has given me something to give. But we might have different goals. But in life, for anyone, but especially for a follower of Jesus, just like in math, where you're going does not necessarily matter more than why you're going there. And it certainly does not matter more than how you get there. And for a follower of Jesus, we get there through obedience. Obedience is the work. Obedience is the journey. The destination is not more important than the journey. Now, this, this passage that we read is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophetic book, which means Isaiah was called by God to kind of be a go-between for the people. He would go to the Lord, and he would receive a word from the Lord for the people. There's kind of a misconception about prophecy. When we think of prophecy, we usually think of the future. Someone saying that this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. It's going to lead to all of these things. Biblically, most of the time, prophecy has very little to do with the future. There are exceptions to that in which someone prophesies that this is going to happen in this timeline, but most of the time, biblically, prophecy is described as forthtelling, not foretelling. It's what does God have to say to us in this moment based on this moment and our needs and our sins and our situation. Not God telling us what's going to happen that we need to prepare for. So the book of Isaiah is most often Isaiah responding to the needs of the people or the questions of the people or going to the Lord and asking, what do you have to say to the people? And in this specific passage, he's giving us this interaction between God and the people. Isaiah is displaying this sort of back and forth because God starts off by saying, my people are rebellious. My people aren't following my ways. And he says something that is provocative. They seem like people who are eager to know my ways. They seem like people who want God to draw near to them. They seem like they really want my presence. They seem like they really want my ways. Which tells us that the people of Israel were doing spiritual things. They were doing some of the right things. In fact, we learned that later because the people respond to God and they say, why are we fasting? God, we're fasting. God, we're praying. God, we've humbled ourselves. You asked us to do these things, but what is the point? Why didn't you respond? They have done spiritual practices and they've done things that would seem to imply that they want the ways of God and that they want the presence of God in their life. They have laid some sort of foundation or begun some sort of practice. They're doing spiritual things and they are frustrated because it feels feels like they've done their part, but God hasn't done his. Have you ever felt like that? I have. Just to be real, I have felt like that a lot. Like, God, I've prayed so much. God, I fasted. God, I have prioritized your people. God, I have sacrificed. Why haven't you done your part? I asked, you're supposed to answer. I fasted, you're supposed to respond. This is a a very consistent experience. If you haven't experienced something like that in your life, you probably will. And there are myriad reasons for that. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but one of the reasons I think can be summarized like this. It's like currency. This is $5. I almost never have cash, but I happen to have cash this week, which is great because it inspired this analogy. Because I opened my wallet and there it was. This is $5. You probably know this. 
the ingredients here are not worth $5. This is not $5 worth of paper and ink. Right? This, is, this is just a piece of paper. It's special paper that's got special printing on it that makes it hard to copy. But if you were to take this printing off and use the same amount of ink and the same colors to print something else, it would not be worth $5. Because this is not $5 worth of material. This is worth $5 because of what it represents. Somewhere, theoretically, somewhere in Washington or wherever the Department of the Treasury keeps that type of thing that I probably should have Googled before this analogy, um, they, they have real valuable things that are theoretically represented by this. So this means that I am operating with $5 of real valuable material. But most cultures have created money as a representative because we don't want to be like miners in the 1840s measuring out gold dust to buy ice cream. Right? That's inconvenient, so we found a representative. So for me, as an adult, this represents somewhere $5 worth, an approximate value of real, tangible, valuable things. For my son, who is six, this represents five toys from the Dollar Tree that he could break today. Actually, it represents like four and a half because of tax, right? Or this represents like ice cream from Brewster's six months ago before inflation. Um, for my son, this is valuable, not even because of what it represents, but because of what he can trade it for, right? For him, this represents something valuable he can get, not something valuable he has somewhere else or he has control of, but it represents something valuable that he can get from someone else. He can take this to a store and exchange it for something. As followers of Jesus, it is extremely common, at least in my life, for me to begin thinking of what we might call the right thing to do, what we might call righteousness, because righteousness really biblically means doing right, thinking right, correct, what is good, what brings good into the world. We begin to think of these things God has called us to do or asked us to do as currency, as if fasting represents a certain level of sacrifice. It represents a certain level of self-denial that is valuable to the Lord. So I can take a certain amount of fasting, and I can then exchange it for something from the Lord. So if I do the fast, then I will get something from the Lord. Why? Because our tendency is to want the answer without showing the work. Our tendency is to be more concerned with the goal, with the destination, than the path by which we get there. So the path by which we get there is just currency. It's just an exchange. The goal is something from the Lord. The goal is blessing. The goal is answer to prayer. The goal is some sort of ecstatic experience. The goal is some sort of knowledge that I don't have yet. And if I trade my fasts, then it's only fair that God would give me something in response. Prayer represents some degree of intentionality. It represents some degree of focus or surrender to the Lord. So if I pray for a certain amount of time, or if I pray with the right words, or if I can concoct the right ideas in my prayer and exchange that to the Lord, then he will give me an answer. And it's about figuring out the right value. If I pray enough, or if I pray correctly, or if I do these things right, then I will get the right thing from the Lord. And we exchange it. So I exchange my prayers or I exchange my church attendance for a family that doesn't argue. Or I exchange my generosity for financial blessing. Or I exchange my prayer for some sort of healing or answer. Now I want to tell you this. We do not live in extremes. 
prayer is effective and there is a goal, there are destinations in the life of a follower of Jesus. We believe that prayer is effective. God responds to the prayers of his people that we can ask and receive answers. If you're going through a hard time in life, if you're facing a difficult decision, one of the first things I would counsel you to do is to fast and pray because it is effective. But it's also valuable in and of itself. It's valuable because of what it is, not just because of what it represents, and not just because of what it gets. Why? Because the journey is just as important as the destination. Where we're going is not more important than how we get there. Fasting is valuable in and of itself. Why? Because obedience to the Lord is valuable because it is right not just because God responds to it. It's valuable in and of itself. When we fast, when we deny ourselves something, it orients our hearts to the things that we truly need. When we let go of something we are dependent on, it aligns our hearts with the things that we are deeply spiritually dependent on. When we pray, not only do we bring our needs to the Lord and ask for a response, but we cry out to our Father, revealing our soul and our inmost being to him. We sit in his presence and learn what his voice sounds like, and our hearts are formed into his image through his presence. Why? Because prayer is meaningful, answer or not. Do we pray for an answer? Absolutely. But the value of prayer is not dependent on the answer. Prayer is valuable because it is right. The destination is not more important than the journey. Now, there's a shadow side. You can probably already see how maybe hollow the exchange rate spirituality becomes. But there's a shadow side to it. And it's that if prayer or if doing right is valuable to me because of what I get— then if I don't get things from it, it's no longer valuable. And I no longer do it. And I don't know about you, but my personality is to always try to get the most results with the least cost. So when we see obedience as a means to an end, rather than an end of itself, when we think obedience is getting me somewhere that's more important than just being obedient, then we will only be obedient to the things that are convenient to get us what we want. And that will almost always, not always, not exclusively, I'm not painting with some huge brush here, there are exceptions, but many times what that means is we will do spiritual things that God tells us to do, but we will not live in spiritual ways as God instructs us. That's what's going on with the people of Israel. They were doing the spiritual practice, they just weren't living in his ways. They thought that they could exchange fasting, but not live a life of justice. But God said, no, obedience is good in and of itself. And full obedience is the goal. So here's what might happen. A lot of times we will fast and we will pray for God to break our pornography addiction. We will fast and pray for some sort of healing, but we're not quite willing to give up our phone or get accountability software on our computer or confess to our spouse or go to counseling. We'll obey part of it but we won't live in obedience. We might pray for God to miraculously provide financially for this thing that we need to get us out of debt, but we might not reject consumeristic culture and reject materialism and choose to live frugally and simply so that we change the habits and patterns of our life so that we don't rebuild the same debt. 
We might pray and fast for God to heal our marriage, but we're not willing to let go of bitterness, operate in forgiveness, sacrifice our desires to honor the other person. We'll obey part of it to exchange it for something, but we won't obey all of it to create something. See, there's a theological concept that starts in the beginning of Scripture that undergirds all of Scripture. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. The English word that's translated here is dominion. The biblical word, the Hebrew word, can be translated stewardship. It's kind of an agricultural word. What it means is that God has actually given us the ability to co-create the world around him with him. God created a world, but he gave us the ability to influence that world. In other words, our decisions create the world that we live in. Now, once again, I want to be careful because some people will then extrapolate that and say, your life right now is the result of all of your decisions. But we have the ability to affect other people. We have good things and bad things in our life that we didn't choose, that were done to us, done for us that are not our fault. But here's the reality. We will create the world that we live in continually. So if our hearts do not change, our lives will not change. If our obedience doesn't change, our circumstances will not change in the long run. So God might miraculously remove my desire for pornography, but if I have an addictive personality and I am continually choosing to cope with stress through a substance or through some sort of relief, then God might remove my addiction to pornography, but I will find a more socially acceptable addiction to fill that with. And I will wind up in the same place, in the same addictive patterns, just with a different addiction. And if if God miraculously takes away the frustration between me and my spouse, but I don't learn to forgive and sacrifice and submit to one another, as the Bible instructs, then that's going to continue to perpetuate. We're just going to rebuild that argument again later. Just for the record, submit to one another. That's what I said. That's biblical. We'll get into a whole marriage argument later but you don't get to flex, say, do what I say, and then call the Bible's shot on it. That's not how it works. We get into a pattern of seeing God as a rescuer. And I want to tell you something. God is a rescuer. He is a mighty savior who comes in at our last minute and is our last hope and last resort. He saves us from our own situation, from our own devices. He is merciful and loving, and and we can cry out to him, and he will intervene. The problem is God is not only a rescuer. He is also a guide. He is also a teacher. I want you to notice a difference that happens in verse 11. Up until this point, God has spent a few verses saying if-then statements. He goes, if you do this, then this will happen. He's talking about the way in which justice creates beauty in the land. And God will respond and restore what he's promised if they're willing to obey. But the pattern changes. God goes, if-then, if-then, if-then. Then verse 10 ends with a period. And the pattern changes in verse 11. Listen, it says, the Lord will guide you always, and he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will. Do you see the difference? Because God 
There are things in our lives that require obedience, but God is always faithful. God's faithfulness is not dependent on our obedience, but we might not notice his faithfulness fully if we are not living in obedience. We might miss the places that he is continually faithful. Why? Because part of his faithfulness is to continually guide us into the life he has created for us, to continually lead us and instruct us and call us into the life that he's created for us. In other words, God is good and his ways are good. And when we learn that he is faithful and good, we can respond in obedience, trusting that obedience will lead to good and that obedience is good in and of itself. And the more you obey, the more you learn God's goodness, the easier it will be to trust God's goodness in things that don't make sense. Listen, the more you obey God with your finances and you see not that he writes you a check because you're generous, but you see that generosity is just a way more beautiful way to live, then when you get to something that's really difficult like your kids, it'll be a lot easier to trust God's goodness because you have proven that he is consistently good and that his ways are good. When you have learned to trust God in obedience with something in your life, then when you get to something that you can't understand that's complicated and a deep struggle, when you have to trust God with your sexuality, when you have to trust God with a change in your career, when you have to trust God in a very difficult financial season, because you have known that he is good, you will be able to trust that he is good and fully obey. Because obedience is good in and of itself. The things God asks us to obey are good in and of themselves, not because of what they get for us, but because they are good, because he is a faithful guide. The destination is not more important than the way we get there. And the way we get there is obedience. Now, we can probably all imagine that for each of us, myself included, there are probably things that we need to choose to obey based on this principle. Some of you might have noticed that this passage deals very directly and explicitly with the poor and the oppressed, and with, unjust, with injustice, and I haven't really dealt with that yet. We haven't talked about that yet. That's an astute observation. You're correct. There are principles in Scripture, in a passage like this, that we can take and we can apply as individuals. And we can say, there's this principle of obedience, that I can't trade spiritual activity to get something from God. He calls me to live in obedience because it is actually good. There are also maybe words for our culture that are present in a passage. And while this is a prophetic word for the people of Israel in a time and place, I think there's a lot of relevance in our time and place right now. We sang a song earlier that I completely love. I love singing, God of Revival. Because that's such a beautiful thing to pray. God of Revival, come. Awaken your people. Awaken your city. Do you hear the chains hitting the ground? It's a beautiful thing. If you... If you hang out in Christian circles or you follow a lot of Christian accounts on social media or you're up to date with like the Christian events going on in culture right now, you know, at least in the Western world, that there are a lot of people who are praying and fasting and gathering for revival right now. There are a lot of people who are praying and gathering and asking the Lord to move in some sort of tangible, powerful way, which is a good thing. And when we say revival, what we normally mean is people choosing to follow Jesus, people getting baptized, addictions being broken. We normally mean missionaries getting sent across the world and the Bible being translated into new languages and 
churches getting planted and some sort of visible kind of tangible move of God where we say, wow, that was more than we could have imagined. I want to tell you that revival is something we absolutely should be praying for as a church. In fact, honestly, I think us at the fold, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message, we should probably be praying more and with more intensity and with more intentionality for revival. We should probably be dedicating more time in our gatherings to just pray and seek the Lord for revival because it is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. It's something we should pray and fast for, for God to move and encounter the world and change hearts and change lives. But I think maybe that God's response to us in the modern world as we gather to pray for revival might be exactly the same as his response to the people of Israel. I think God's response might be, it seems like you want my presence. It seems like you're eager for my ways, but is not the fasting I have desired to loose the yoke of the oppressed, to use your influence, to be a voice for those who cannot speak or to empower the voices of those who go unheard? Is not the fasting I have required, is not humbling yourself more than just bowing on your knees for a day? Is it not giving up power? And Is it not using what you have, the resources you have to feed the hungry? To, to, to clothe the naked, to preach the gospel, to stand up against injustice. Is this not the fast? This is a consistent theme all throughout Scripture. And I just want to tell you, church, we live in a culture right now that desperately longs for the move of God. And I think God might be saying, listen, I'll always guide you. I'll always move. I'm always here accomplishing my purposes. But when are you going to fully obey? Because we really, really like miracles as a culture right now. We really, really like powerful stories. We really, really like events where we can say, man, that was so cool. God changed so many hearts. There was so much stuff I can't explain. And there were still homeless people in the streets as I left. It doesn't really move us into action on behalf of those that God has made it explicitly clear that he has a special and significant place in his heart for. It is nearly impossible to read the story of Scripture and not see that God has a unique and almost preferential love for the oppressed and the poor. So we should pray for revival. We should beg God to raise up messengers. We should call to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And we should take the responsibility on ourselves to bring his justice into the world to stand up for those who are close to his heart. And that is not an easy answer. There's not some sort of like political agenda we can just vote into place. There's not some sort of easy right solution, but it means the people of God refusing to outsource it to someone else and saying, I will do my part. So this is why, as a community, starting on the first Sunday of September, we're going to have a donations basket in the lobby for you to donate school uniform clothing items to go to Title I schools. There are a lot of immigrant children who can't really afford to clothe themselves to go to school. So we're going to make sure, we're going to take it on ourselves as a church to make sure that those kids can go to school because they have uniforms. We are going to clothe the naked. We are going to do it. That's going to be part of our responsibility as a church. This is why we've got somebody in our church right now who is actively figuring out how we can volunteer and build relationships in juvie so we can build relationships and serve. This is why Anthony Houston and some other people go downtown and feed the homeless and share the gospel with those who are under-resourced just about once a month, and you can participate in that. We are taking this seriously. 
This is our responsibility as followers of Jesus. This is why we are actively exploring how we can begin meeting needs locally and globally all over the world and preaching the gospel all over the world. Because if Jesus said every tribe and tongue, but we stop in Greenville, then we stopped too soon. We want to take responsibility, full obedience to the work of Jesus. So I think this morning as we close, there are two, play, two, two ideas here. The first is as individuals. Is there something that, that God's asking you to obey? Is there something you need to give up? Is there something you need to lay down? Do you need to make church a bigger priority? you need to start tithing? Do you need to forgive somebody? Do you need to, um, do you need to start volunteering with your free time? Is there a point, a point of obedience? Do you need to get accountability software on your phone? Do you need to confess to someone before you leave the building today? That might be the thing of obedience that you need to do today to respond fully, to embrace the journey, not just the destination. But also... There is a response that's for our culture and that's for our community, that's for all of us right now, that is to say we have to decide that even though we might not have it all figured out right now, that we are going to fully obey. We are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus and meet the needs in the world around us because we want revival. And we embrace that revival is not just a spiritual reality, it changes all of reality. There are two responses, one for us as individuals and one for us as a community. I want to invite you to wrestle with those as we close in worship. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us today. We thank you that we can cry out to you that chains will be broken, that we can cry out to the God of revival to come and move in our hearts. But God, we know that revival starts in our hearts, and it doesn't just start in our prayer closets. It starts with our obedience. So Jesus, I ask that you would move us to be people who fully obey, I ask that we would be people whose hearts say yes before you even ask, before we even know what you're asking, that you would have our yes because we trust that you are good and we know that you are good. We would be people who are fully obedient to the kingdom of God. And that would not just change the things we look at on the internet and what we do with our money, but that would change the way we interact with injustice. That would change the way we interact with our career. That would change the way that we interact with global issues. God, I ask that you would, through our obedience, form our hearts to be people who have your eyes and your heart and your feet in the world that we would fully obey because it's not just heaven it's not just the destination someday the journey matters just as much and the journey is where we're at right now in the world that we're in we love you Jesus, amen let's stand and worship together